a joy to be here this morning to continue <coughs> looking at the book of 1 John. Um, today we're in 1 John 2.28 through 3.10, um, and we're going to kind of generally be looking at distinguishing the children of God from the children of the devil, but we do, and I recognize we're entering, uh, some of you may not have been here for the other studies, uh, so if you've got a handout, I've I have put kind of where we've been so far, the main ideas from the previous one, two, three, four, four lessons, um, so you can catch up. Um, and then if I were to summarize today, uh, in 1 John 2, 28 through 3, 10, there, the underline, you'll see that, um, I think what we're going to see is that we recognize that a child of God is one who abides in faith in Christ, and then through their lives, they strive to live in purity as God is pure. So the hope today is that this is, this is really a dialogue. I, I need your interaction, otherwise it'll end up just being a monologue and we'll be done in 20 minutes. Uh, none of us should want that. Uh, we're gonna wanna chew on this stuff, we're gonna wanna take a look at it. Um, I do have some uh, other script, scriptural references that I'll ask for audience participation. Uh, and then as well, I would ask that if you have a question at any time, get my attention, raise your hand. Uh, and we'll answer it. Um, if it's uh, an answer that's coming up, I'll let you know. Or if I think um, we could talk about it more appropriately afterwards, I'll, I'll direct it to that. But um, please, I encourage, encourage your interaction. Um, but we should kind of jump right in. So if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 John, uh, not the Gospel of John, but the Epistles of John, 1, 2, and 3 John, or in 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through 3.10. Uh, and I'll read that. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Amen. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that when he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning, because he has been born of God. But this, by this it is evident who are the children of God, and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. A lot of good stuff in here. And uh, as you'll see on your handout, I've generally broken this into three sections. Um, 
First John chapter 2, 28 uh, through 3, 3. Uh, the first two verses in the first section, 1 John 28, uh, 2, 28 and 29. Uh, in this section, we'll see uh, a discussion on the children of God. And if we want to think about it, the children of God in knowing our future. Um, and then secondly, we'll go to chapter 3, verses uh, 4 through 8. The children of the devil, in essence, remembering our past. And we'll finish up in verses 9 and 10 on the importance of who we are or what our lives reveal. Um, So we start out in chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. If if you were here last week, um, Mark did a great job of of taking us through this idea. Uh, in In the previous section, there was a lot of talk about abiding in the truth, abiding in God. Does anyone remember what, what we discussed or what, what that term means when we say abide in him, abide in the truth? It's not a trick question. I wasn't here, but I would okay. say live in, like you're yeah. living in, you're resting in. Yeah. Any other thoughts? not a word we use a lot. So you dwell in? Like that's your home base. That's yeah. where you're staying. But. Yeah. Dwelling in. And then it's this, it's this sense of remaining, right? It's this sense of continually abiding, continually remaining, remain remaining uh, in the truth. And so he also addresses us again as little children. He's done this in the past. And, and, and this, is, um, this is his way of... Um, Demonstrating his love for us um, as children, uh, but also it kind of speaks to the maturity uh, that John has uh, before that church. So we get a sense for John's uh, real love, concern, and encouragement in this section, and, and we've gotten that same sense in the previous weeks as well. So we're encouraged again, and this is the transition from last week, to abide in him. We learned at the end of last week that the Holy Spirit has taught us the truth in Jesus Christ, and we are to and we must abide in it. So as we grow in Christ and in the truth, we abide from truth to truth as we mature until he appears again. So this is a continuous call to remain remaining, to keep abiding in him. And so if, if, if you look at your copy of God's word, what is the reason we are to abide? What is the reason we're to abide in Christ? So that we can have confidence and not shrink back in shame. Exactly. So that we can be confident, right? So there are two responses that we see to the second coming, which is where we're kind of seeing that now. We're seeing the second coming. Two responses that we see to the second coming, and and what are they? One's already been mentioned, confidence. And what's the second one that we see? Shame. Shame. Is there any any other response to the second coming of Christ? There, there There is no, there is none. There is no other response. There are these two responses. And the point here is that John 
desires us to be confident when that day comes. And it is an expectation that we can, as children of God, be confident when he comes and returns to judge. For the Christian, there is confidence. For the non-Christian, there will be shame. So everyone will see Christ at his coming. And they'll either do that with a bold confidence, which is what John is commending, or shame. So we're going to look at a few verses here. Um, I'll just ask for uh, volunteers. Just raise your hand if, if you're willing to read. Um, Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. Okay. Philippians 4, 13. Dave. Um, Proverbs 3, 25 and 26. And Psalm 25, 3. Okay, thank you. And we'll go in that order. So, Ephesians 3, 11, and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access, access with confidence through our faith in him. So these are all going to just reinforce this idea that we are to have confidence as Christians, children of God. Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens as we're strengthened, we will most certainly be more confident. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin of the wicked. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. So again, who, who is our confidence? The Lord. And it's in Him that we're to buy, abide. Psalm 25, 3. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. So again, we see that the opposite of confidence is shame. Right? There's only two categories. Those who will be confident, who abide in Christ, and those who we put to shame. So just to take a quick glimpse at that idea of shame, uh, can I have someone read Isaiah 47.3? Thanks in the back. And then uh, a little longer, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Thanks. So when you're at Isaiah 47, 3, go ahead and read it loud for us. Your nakedness shall be uncovered, and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance, and I will spare no one. Your disgrace shall be seen. Everything will be laid bare before God on that day. That is the shame. And as a picture of what those, who those apart from Christ will do and what their response will be, um, Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks. Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Who can stand? So what, what would John say? Again, just to reiterate, who are those who will stand? Christians. Christians. Those who abide in the truth 
and those who through that can be confident on that great day. And I always thought it's amazing. Like there just there are these two responses. And there's nobody in Revelation 6:15 to 17 that's kind of still on the fence, right? That's that's well, there there still might be this other way. When Christ returns, there will be no doubt. They will call on the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. They will flee from the Lord. So again, John wants his believers, he wants the children of God to abide in Christ and thus be confident. But we're not, we're not just to be confident, right? It's founded in Christ. But that confidence on that day comes from abiding in Christ in obedience today, right? So confidence on that day comes from abiding in Christ today. So as you move on to verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So in verse 29, we begin kind of the fundamental connection now between knowing God and doing righteousness. And it provides provides the very basis that we're going to talk about the rest of this morning for distinguishing those who are children of God and can be confident from those who are, as hard as it may sound sometimes to us and as hard as it sounds to the world, the children of the devil that will be in shame. So God is righteous and only those born of God, quote, born of God, can practice true righteousness. So assuming we're all believers, seeing most of you, um, this idea of being born of God really isn't strange to us, but I think it does sound strange. Does anybody have any experiences in talking to unbelievers through evangelism or other interactions about this idea of being born of God and and how have you described that to them? So most, what, what's it mean? What's it mean to be born of God? What does John mean here? Exactly, exactly. Is there any human action involved in being born of God? No, not at that moment. That is, a, that is a spiritual birth. God does the birthing through His Spirit in conjunction with the gift of faith in Jesus Christ. So let's go, Jocelyn. Let's go to those references in John really quickly. Um, so Jocelyn, Get John 3, 3 through 7 ready. It's the Gospel of John now, not the first John. And could I ask uh, someone else to uh, pull up John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13? Okay, we're going to read that one first. So I just want to, I guess I want to, I want to draw out a little more this idea of being born of God, because it will come up again in a little bit. 
So John 1, 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In John 3, 3 through 7. So this idea of being born again, this is a supernatural, God-affected rebirthing that allows us to be children of God. So as we're going to, was that a, was yeah. the hard part for me, uh, going back to this uh, verse 29, yeah. in talking about being born again with somebody who doesn't believe that Jesus is God, doesn't believe that the Bible is God's word, is this idea of practicing righteousness. And I, I'll admit it's, it's hard for me too because there are so many acts of unrighteousness by people who claim to follow Christ. And there are so many acts of you know moral uprightness by people who certainly claim not to follow Christ. And so especially if you're talking to somebody about practicing righteousness like I just don't see it because here are righteous people who don't claim Christ here are people that look very unrighteous who like to follow Christ so what do you think he means here by practicing righteousness is it is it something other than you know what we would normally think of as living moral upright lives in, in faith well there there is the tension we, I think we all feel it, and the world sees it, right? And we're going to talk more about this. This whole section is to help us and help the church that he's addressing. You know, and one of the main things is to, to not be deceived by false teachers, right? And so our lives do matter. And so I think, um, I hope we'll toy that out a little, tease that out a little more as we go. Um, but, I mean, ultimately he's there idea of you know moral and ethical purity but then there's this idea of righteousness uh, and yes in this life we don't see it but I think yeah you'd, you'd have to spend a lot more time um, and have that discussion go ahead and just to add to that um, I think of the Pharisees how they seem to be morally upright and how but their hearts were so far from the Lord and those who are non-believers Though they might be doing what it looks like to be quote unquote good things, their heart is wicked and so far from the Lord. And yeah, so an unbeliever can't please the Lord and their aim is not to honor him. Whereas a believer, their aim by God's grace and his spirit is to honor him and to give him glory. So I think that's a big thing to bring up with unbelievers, just their depravity. And we were such one of them. Yeah. Yeah, I do think there's a difference, and we're going to see it as we go, between, you know, a, you know, opening your eyes and taking a picture of someone's life in an instant, 
and the pattern, the pattern over time that we see. And I, I think we, we have to engage the world to look for patterns. Because in an instant, yeah, it's, it's full of other stories and other examples to show us. Um, but let's move on to chapter three. Um, yeah. I have a friend um, who came to a Bible study that I was leading, uh, and at the end, she was saying, but I do good things, and I know you guys do good things. Uh, and so I talked about with that she was saying, like, your motivation is different. Like, your motivation is self-serving, where we want to serve and glorify God. But in her state, she still couldn't see it. Does that make sense? Like, her eyes are so blind that, like, she just thought she just she was a good person and that's all she could see. That's so, good what I'm saying. If you're talking to somebody who who doesn't trust Christ, yeah. This is you know, being born again it's it's hard to see it as far as practicing righteousness. Well, I practice righteousness too. Yeah. So. And she couldn't, and that's something that we still pray for because it's that born again thing that once your eyes are open, you're like, oh, there it is. And it's sad, right? It's super sad. That's a perfect transition to these next three verses. So most of the commentators in these next three verses almost, almost act like this is a, like a parenthesis, right? It's, a, it's kind of an addition that, that breaks from the, the path that 28 and 29 were going. But I think it hits on, on kind of what you're saying as the motivation. So I'll read um, chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now, as you get to know me, you, you realize I'm not a hugely dynamic individual. But I'm going to try to extend myself a little bit and read this like I think John intends it. Okay? So we come out of, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? NIV says lavished on us. That we should be called the children of God? And so we are. Amen. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. So John opened calling us little children in this endearing kind of way. But who does he say now actually claims us as believers, as his children? God the Father. God the Father says, you are my children. What love? Is that not lavish love? from us who were previously his enemy. He rebirthed us and now he calls us his children. And he doesn't just call us his children. I think a lot of the world sees, they'll see us say something and then see this difference in what we do. But God calls us his children. And then there's the reiteration in these verses. And the NIV says, and that is what we are. We're called his children. And that is what we are, just to reinforce it. And then we 
power if we skip to verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. Not, not after some period of time of proving how good we can be and, and looking at our righteous past, but we're children. We're called children by the Father. We are children, and we are children now. What an immense privilege it is to be chosen to be in the family, right? And with that, the transformation into the likeness of Christ has begun, right? But even better than that, what we are now, that may seem, stands in contrast to what will be later, that has not yet appeared. We shall be like him. And what does this mean? This is more a complete ethical and moral purity, right? The transformation also comes somehow because we see him as he is, right? Not as he was during his earthly ministry, not as we see him now through eyes of faith, um, but as he is, we will see heavenly glory. And that will be enough to make us pure, truly pure like he is pure and does the world understand all this it doesn't go back to go back to verse 3 verse 1b the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him right there there we we expect no respect from god calling us his children and actually being his children now on earth now prior to his return, right? They didn't recognize him. What expectation do we have that, that they'll recognize us as his children? And verse 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So our future hope, our confidence causes us to act now in preparation for that day. So we said, it's God who did the work. God rebirthed us. God calls us his children. God makes it now. But yet in verse 3 he says, and anyone who thus hopes in him, we, we cling to all this, will purify ourselves as he is pure. So there, there, is this, there is this tension there, right? So do we have a role in our own purity? Yes. Yes. And is that, does everyone understand what that is? Is that easy? Is that hard? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There's a good analogy from Michael Lawrence, who's a pastor uh, out in Oregon at Henson Baptist Church. Um, he says, imagine, imagine your dream vacation. Maybe you've been on it. Maybe you, there's one you want to go on. Um, and if you know you're going, like this is a guaranteed thing, right? Do you, not, do you not prepare? Do you not tell people of this fantastic trip you're going to take in six months, right? Would you wait until the morning of your departure to pack your luggage? Would you wait till the morning of your departure to make sure you have all your documents in order? No, absolutely not, right? So do we have a part to play in our purity in getting ready for Jesus' return? Absolutely, it's a part of this parenthetical. 
Like, what kind of love has the Father lavished on us that we are to be called the children of God? And that is what we are, and that is what we are now. And that motivates us to want to live like our Father now, right? So we look to Christ and abide in him and in the truth, and we, and we purify ourselves. We say no to sin. Who wants to have even a little bit of sin, right, in their suitcase, in their luggage, when Jesus comes, right? Who, who wants to carry that shame with them, right? If we're a child of God, we say absolutely not. And then we work diligently as individuals to purify ourselves, by abiding in Christ, and we, we are to be together as a church, as a community of believers, to do that for one another. Um, and that's, that, that affects our individual purity, but it also is going to protect us from false teachers who are going to come in and say something contrary to try to, to, try to drag us away from abiding in Christ. So no, we don't want garbage as a child of God in our luggage, Right? Life patterns, habits, habitual sins. But again, we'll never do this unless we first grasp the love of God that he lavished upon us. And, and through that rebirthing process, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are able to just dwell on that and abide on that. So, again, and then we need to help each other and we need help packing our suitcases, right? So anticipation for being with him and seeing Jesus as he is should affect us now and cause our joyful participation in this endeavor. And there's always going to be that tension with the world. Like they're going to see some of our garbage. They're going to see some of the stuff we don't want in our luggage in those instances where they look at us. But hopefully as they watch our pattern of life, they're going to see the purity that we desire. Any, qu- any well, questions on that? Yeah. that like, I'm thinking of my friend. The other thing she couldn't get is not only that her good works deserves but she couldn't see her sin. Mm-hmm. Like she, she didn't understand what her sin deserved and how bad that was. And even when I would tell her about my own sin, she's like, oh, but that doesn't matter. You're such a good person. Right. You know, like, so the first step is actually not to see God's love, to see your wretchedness. And then you seek that, you know, it becomes that much greater. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like as Christians, we forget that part of evangelism, like to really rest there for a second. Yeah. And again, I think we're going to label a chair for you because that's a perfect transition. <laughs> again, <laughs> to the next section. But before we do that, any other thoughts or comments? Any from way in the back? Can you guys hear me okay? All right. I just, as like a recap, I just love how the words, these action words, whoever practices righteousness and then um, whoever hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Like the, and I, I know Paul addresses this so many times in his letters, like, yes, we were saved, we've been forgiven, but now we are to live out these things or to walk in the good works that Christ has given to us before the foundation of the world and we have things to do it's like we can't just sit there and do nothing because we're going to drift away so yeah just loving that john is 
cohesive yeah. together. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so how we live our lives matters. Right? Sin matters, and we're going to talk about that more. Right? So that whole first section is really kind of looking forward. It's, it's the motivation as children of God, true Christians, looking forward to the hope that we have when he returns and the motivation that that is. But we should never forget the past, as was just brought up, right? So the second section, right, is, is remembering and, and clarifying the children of the devil. And really for all of us, it's remembering who we were prior to that rebirthing, prior to being born of God. 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So as I said, uh, the first three verses of chapter 3 is, is, an, is a strong aside, a strong motivator for us. And if we looked at verse 29 again, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And then if we went directly to verse 4, Everyone who makes practice of sinning, the opposite, also practices lawlessness. So you can, you get this sense that we could go from verse 29 directly to verse 4, but there's definitely a bunch missing if we skip verses 1 through 3. So we continue to see how righteousness, and it can be confusing, righteousness distinguishes the children of God from the children of the devil, from sinners. But what about this idea Paul uses, or John uses, lawlessness? Whoever makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. So is there a difference between what he's getting at here with sinning and lawlessness? Any thoughts that may help us? Pat? I think here in the is I'm going to practice sinning with no thoughts that I'm not going to feel any punishment for God. You know, my sin is not going to affect me. Whereas most of us here feels that we feel we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin, that we should be in a constant state of repentance, even though our flesh doesn't allow us to do that. We can't walk through the day every second that on our mind we'd like to but we, our flesh is battling so like I said here I think it's an idea of, yeah yeah I, look what I did today it didn't hurt me yeah why should tomorrow be any different I'm going to enjoy life do whatever right. I want right no I think there that's are, there are many that have accepted Christ and still think there's no punishment for sin but it's hard to believe that even 
Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. And if and if you spent time either counseling or discipling, you know, brothers or sisters in Christ, it's amazing the kinds of excuses we can come up with to justify why we did what we did. It was somebody else that caused me to do it, right? Well, grace covers me. You know, as Pat said, we're we're gonna gonna want to come up with all kinds of different excuses. Um, but yeah, this idea of lawlessness is not a reference to Old Testament law, um, because this, 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 there is really no discussion of the Old Testament law per se in, in any of these other books, one, two, or three John. Um, so very simply, it seems that um, this habitual sin, right, which which we're gonna that word habitual is a word we're gonna use a lot coming up here, like making a practice of sinning, right, morally and ethically. Um, making a practice of missing the mark shows we're not children of God. It shows, it shows we're in opposition to God. And, and most basically, this is what the Bible calls and lumps up as iniquity, right? It's, these, it's premeditated choices and this bent towards opposition to God. And that most assuredly characterizes and is the devil's nature and the devil's desires. And that is what we were before the gospel. It's wickedness. It's being under control of the devil. So the habitual practicing of sin with excuses or no remorse, no matter how good we are in other places, indicates to us a life of lawlessness, that, that one has not been born again through the Spirit of God. Um, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and him there is no sin. And we're stepping, we're stepping away from the second coming. We're stepping back to Christ's first coming through the incarnation. And it stands at the heart of the gospel message. Jesus came to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. And we've seen this in other places. And and just in the effort of time, I'll I'll look at them. Just in 1 John alone. So 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 1 John 2, 12, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So we're reminded that Jesus came to take away sin. And through that rebirthing, being born as a child of God, he frees us from this this bent on lawlessness. And in him there is no sin. He is pure and he is righteous. And the motivation that we already talked about in 3, 1 through 3 is what drives us to purify and prepare ourselves for that day. Um, I always remember J.C. Ryle in his book Holiness. It's to this point where he says, what makes you think you're going to like heaven if you don't like holiness here? Right? I mean, that... That doesn't make any sense. So we shouldn't do that. And then this idea that, that 
Christ is pure and righteous. If we were to go to 1 John 2, 1, uh, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ is righteous. So he's the only one who's righteous. 1 John 3, 3, we, we just saw this. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as is pure. So let's move on to verses 6 through 8 of chapter 3. No one who abides in him, again, abides in him, remains, this ongoing habitual remaining, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning, again, this ongoing habitual remaining in sin, has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son appeared, Son of God appeared, was to destroy the works of the devil. So again, very quickly, we, we see this similar theme. Verse 6, abiding. Um, verse 6 again, habitual keeping on of sinning. Um, verse 7, the habitual practicing of righteousness. Um, this suitcase preparing that we need to do, right? Hope-based righteousness. Um, doing right, not just claiming right. Um, verse 8. So practicing sinning is lawlessness. The devil is the ultimate lawless one. Sinning as the devil sins means that we're in the camp of the devil and are in fact his children compared to being the children of God. So we need to be careful in our own hearts from even slight immoral, unethical postures to more severe ones, sin, that we don't trivialize it, right? That we don't, that we, that we don't say it doesn't matter. It absolutely matters. And it absolutely must matter because at the end of verse 8 tells us the reason that Jesus came. And what is that? What was that? The end of verse 8. Why did Jesus come? Destroy the works of the devil. To destroy the works of the devil. Friends, our patterns, our actions, and our attitudes, they show our nature. We act because we have desires that reveal our hearts. Our actions will never save us. We need Jesus for that, right? He is central. It's not just enough to believe in God or a God. And, and we don't have the time to draw it out, um, but it's actually interesting if you study probably what these false teachers to the church were actually commending. And they were saying they believed in God, but they were denying Jesus. And we can't, we can't do that. Um, it just reveals our hearts and our natures. So Jesus is central to our faith. Abiding in Jesus is central to our righteousness. It's not just enough to believe in God and say you know him. 
we must know, confess, and abide in him. And that's the test. That's the test as we reflect on our own lives, um, as we come to each other to ensure we're walking in the truth uh, and not failing away, that we're not abiding. So let's move into the last section. Um, so we've looked at the children of God based on understanding and being motivated by our future. We've looked at the children of the devil and remembered our own past. And now we're going to look at the reality, the importance of who we are and what our lives reveal ultimately. So verse 9 and 10 say, No one of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. By this is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So you have to come back next week for the do not love his brother, because that's the whole topic of this next section after this. Um, but we do want to dive in a little bit again in this section of those who do not practice righteousness. Is anybody confused by this idea of God's seed remaining in us, abiding in us? So I, I, I chose not to go study. There are other things specifically who have apparently some very interesting theology on what this means. So just to, to pick it apart a little bit most basically, if we look at verses 9 and 10, it actually has an interesting flow. So we go from this idea that no one who is born of God will practice or continuing sinning because God's seed remains in him. And then we're going to back ourselves out. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So it leads into and out of, again, this idea of God's seed abiding in us. And what we see is the importance of this new birth, right? And being God's children, the things, the very things we've stressed already. Um, this being brought to a new spiritual life by the will of God through the agency of the Holy Spirit. We should have a radical new nature, and the only way to explain it is because of radical new birth. This a metaphor, right? Um, with a new birth, God promises to remain with us. And, and he remains with us in some ways we've already seen. Let, really quickly in 1 John 2.24, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. So this idea of God's truth, the gospel, abides in us. So that's one. And then 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing that you received from him abides in you. That's the Holy Spirit. 
So we have God's truth abides in us. We have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. And next week we'll see in 1 John 3.24 that whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. God abides in him. So we have God's truth abiding in us. We have the Holy Spirit abiding in us. And we have God abiding in us. And so this idea of God, I think, is simply best just seen as the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's work in our lives to continue to germinate the seed of our own righteousness until he comes again is what causes a true believer, a true child of God, to keep from sinning, right? Because he has been born of God. So simplest, again, because the Holy Spirit abides with his children, we should see the effects in a different life. And in that different life, again, not just the glimpse at a moment in someone's life, which is why we have to live in community with one another. It's, it's the patterns that we should see. Can assess our own profession of faith, and they can help us as individuals and believers, as community of believers, to assess the validity of others who may want to teach and teach, teach us. So we can see again that we recognize the child of God their abiding faith in Christ and through their striving to live in purity as God is pure. Um, now we really didn't toy out in detail your question because there is tension. Because there's the first part of 1 John that basically says we do not sin, we deceive ourselves. And then we have this section that says we should never sin. Right, and so there there is that tension, but um, that would be an excellent discussion for another time. So, um, love for any more thoughts you guys have, um, any more experiences, uh, either in evangelism or in your own life with this idea. Rusty. Yeah, the words, the voice of false teaching, ultimately the devil is all around us. So, there was another hand. Yeah, I just, I love God's wisdom and design of putting us together in a local church so that we can hold each other accountable and point out when we see sin, as well as individually when we're living our life as well. In chapter one, we're to confess our sins, and uh, he is righteous to forgive us of our sins. But... Also, even the sacraments, right? Taking communion, having those short accounts together, being reminded that if we are have unrepentant sin, we're not even to take communion. So that is an actual safeguard, you know, to remind us. So those things that the Lord has instituted to keep us and to help us is just amazing. So thankful. Yeah. And I think I'm constantly amazed at my own disposition to kind of leave the gospel as elementary knowledge, I've heard it, it affected me, I need to move on to 
you know, the, the other meat looks, looks different than the gospel. But, but I think this text clearly reminds us to keep, to keep the gospel front and center yes. in our lives and in our hearts. And to never forget that, it, that there, there's nothing we can do of our own strength, right? The rebirth we have in Christ and this understanding of the lavish. I mean, just, just spend some time today thinking about the lavish ways God has loved us. Should constantly remotivate us, one, to be in the world, um, to engage the world and hopefully show our lives to the world, um, and to do in our own strength what God calls us to do to purify ourselves, right? To look at our lives, to look at our luggage, take out the bad, and only replace it with things of Christ. So if there's no other questions, we will pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word today. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, you call us your children. You have poured out your love in lavish ways. We open our eyes to it. Lord, even as those who have been reborn of your spirit, we need constantly to have our eyes turned to you. These are eyes of faith now. But we look longingly to the day when the eyes of faith will be replaced with eyes of sight and we will see you how you are. Lord, let that influence every aspect of our lives, Lord. Have that to protect us from uh, our own propensity to sin, Lord. Protect us from false teachers. Thank you for the teachers we have in this church. And even as we go forward into the sermon now, we pray that uh, you will open Garrett's mouth, that he will speak your word, Lord, that he is living out what he learned even before he brings it to us, and that he simply shares you with us. We pray you'll be with us all, help us to be vulnerable before one another. Thank you for the community of believers. In Christ's name, amen.